This is Tom Darling, your host for Conversations with Classic Boats. And our episode today is called Icy Classic, 88 Years of Winter Sailing at Larchmont Yacht Club. In 2017, one of my first articles for my friend Ben Cesar at Windcheck Magazine was about frostbiting. It was cast as a busman's holiday. I went to each of the Western Long Island Sound Club's that had winter sailing. I sailed their local boats, not well, and I wrote about it. Here in COVID winter two, I wanted a reprise, but I wanted it to be about the fountainhead of winter sailing, the Larchmont Yacht Club. Only this time I was wiser. I did not try to compete. I just watched. I was able to go out on the only committee boat that I know, with a wood stove and a shingled roof, to observe and have my cousin, Peter Taylor, take excellent pictures on a bright, puffy December afternoon. And we rediscovered the ultimate socially distanced outdoor recreation for sailors. That would be frostbiting, or as they say at the Larchmont Yacht Club, winter sailing. Emerging in the depths of the Great Depression, winter dinghy sailing inspired some of the greats of that time be they Corny Shield Sr. or the inestimable Arthur Knapp, considered the godfather of winter sailing with his pipe and professorial approach. Here in part one of a two-stage podcast, we will dig back into the creation story of frostbiting. We'll listen to the words of the great Arthur Knapp himself and get up close to a day of the action on the water, December 12, 2021. Then a few weeks from now, we'll return to talk to members of a frostbiting dynasty. Grandfather, winner of four season championships. His son also won four season championships. And his granddaughter, a New England College Sailor of the Year when she graduated Yale in 2020. In their own words, talking about the Larchmont winter sailing experience. But today, the part of Arthur Knapp reading his own writings will be played by Peter Taylor, a familiar voice to you conversations with Classic Boats listeners. But we'll start the story as we often do, with the history, with the mythology surrounding the early days of a boating activity. That would be frostbiting, winter sailing. And who better to return to tell that story than one Arthur Knapp, Princeton graduate of the 1920s, the force between founding intercollegiate sailing in the mid-1920s, tactician on the J-Boat Ranger in 1936. And who else could have snagged a Vanderbilt J-Boat owner to write the foreword to his first book? And that book would be Race Your Boat Right. How many generations have followed Professor Knapp's advice in the red-covered classic, 334 pages of text, diagrams, and photos that I read incessantly as a young sailor. How lucky I was to be gifted a copy by my great-uncle, who was the model builder, if you remember, of Episode 5. The copy, acquired later, I learned, in a Larchmont Library book sale in the late 1950s, shortly after the first 1952 publication came out, 
and well before I was born. On the subject of winter sailing, there is no equivalent authority. I suppose I could have just read into the mic the entire text of chapter 20, entitled Frostbite Dinghy Racing, A School for Sailing, unquote. Peter Taylor starts us off on page 300 of the 1960 edition of Race Your Boat Right. On January 1st, 1952, Frostbite Dinghy Racing, as we know it today, came of age with the 21st annual regatta held by the Frostbite Yacht Club under the auspices of the Manhasset Bay Yacht Club. The Frostbite Yacht Club, an organization unique in the annals of yachting history in that it has no dues, no assets, no nothing, has prospered and grown to the extent that 1952 saw it run its first truly formal regatta. Knapp went on to point out, its own officers for the past 28 years make up a reasonably fair picture of the outstanding small boat skippers at the eastern seaboard. Mr. Knapp was never accused of soft-pedaling his hyperbole. He continued to describe the events that coincided with the second edition of the book in 1960. January 1, 1960, saw the 29th annual regatta of the Frostbite Yacht Club held on Manhasset Bay with 112 boats in four one-design classes. Starting more or less as a joke, in the bathtub gin era of the 30s, winter dinghy sailing quickly became nicknamed Frostbiting and the name has stuck and become synonymous with the sport. It has been my pleasure and good fortune to have been constantly engaged in dinghy racing on Long Island Sound and elsewhere since the first wet, cold, and snowy New Year's Day of 1932, when the first winter regatta was founded. And, may I say possibly immodestly, nevertheless proudly, that in 1960 I'm the only one left of that original band who raced on the first day who is still actively racing. And it is still fun for me. Knapp and Frostbiting came to the party together and never left. He waxes poetic on its virtues. It is my opinion that anyone who frostbites regularly is attending one of the finest schools in boat handling ever organized, and that includes boats of all sizes. In most cases, your ardent frostbiter doesn't realize he is attending school. He's out for fun and fresh air to try his skill against the next fellow, to experiment with a new gadget or new idea for the thrill of feeling a lively and tricky boat under him in a fresh breeze, and occasionally for a dunking in very cool, cold, and very wet water. But whether the sailor realizes it or not, every time he starts a race, he is learning. I love it. Arthur Knapp is proud to say that at the time of the book's second edition, 1960, and as he points out in italics, this is the key for all sailors. It is still fun for me. That's the spirit. The word, according to Knapp, goes something like this for another eight pages, with him covering every subject from the choice of winter haberdashery to course configuration. There are some priceless sections. It is indeed the little red book of frostbiting. Here's what he said about clothing. And the obvious layman's question, isn't dinghy racing cold? Don't you freeze out there in those little boats? In 1960, this was his advice. Sure, it's cold, but you don't freeze. He goes on to say, Ice boating is cold, so is skiing, skating, or any other outdoor winter sport. If properly clothed with several pairs of wool socks under galoshes, no shoes inside, or thermo socks, Dacron underwear, wool trousers, 
and shirt, sweater, and some kind of nylon windbreaker or slicker, one needn't be cold. Now that's after you came up to the surface if you fell overboard wearing all these layers, life jacket or not. The person whom I know that Arthur would have loved to meet is Martha Parker, owner of Team One Newport, outfitter to the Grand Prix circuit, authority to the gear makers of the world, sitting there at the apex of high-end competition in Newport, Rhode Island, and with a local group of frostbiters in boats anything from DF-95 RC boats to gulp lasers. Martha can identify the brand of a dry suit with her eyes closed. So we asked her, for the late nap's sake, how does one go about getting ready to do full-blown winter sailing? Martha, hi. You just drove back from the Orange Bowl in Miami. Maybe uh, dry suits are not on the tip of your tongue today. But give us a little of that mad Martha on a few subjects. Namely, dry suits, gloves, footwear for the winter sailor. I would, I would love to have that conversation with Arthur because I would definitely in 1960s when he wrote his passage, I think that probably wool pants and a few pairs of socks uh, with your galoshes was probably what you had. And so for him, you probably felt a little bit like the Michelin man. But I can tell you that I have, uh, I sailed inner clubs with Michael Zavell at a large yacht club. And the dry suit was just beginning in 1982 and 83. So not everybody had them and I certainly didn't have one. But back then we would layer ourselves and wear our foul weather gear pants because those were at least waterproof and lots of socks. But Michael was very, very nice and he would put water in the boat. So I had to bail. Mm. So if I had to bail while I was being crew, I was at least staying somewhat warm because okay. I can tell you at 5'2 and 110 pounds, I get cold. Mm. And even with a dry suit, you can get cold. I had a dry suit when I was sailing the snow and satisfaction in probably 1987 with one of the, um, one of the Gerard, I mean, sorry, one of the Coleman brothers. And we capsized four times, mm. not a good thing to do, but I had gotten my hair wet. So when you are frostbiting, you do want to try to keep your hair dry. And uh, I did get hypothermia and it was not fun. And then, uh, but before that, I had been selling full rig lasers doing frostbiting because that is the boat that we frostbite, one of the boats that we frostbite. And Pete Mills and I started Fleet 413 up in Newport. And the rule was, is once Martha's ponytail froze, that meant I had to go in. Okay. And I would be, I would be like that 10 year old in the summertime whose lips were purple and I was having way too much fun and I did not want to go in. I'd be like, no, 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 I'm still having fun, you know, get in. So a lot of experience there. So but practically, practically speaking today, I mean, dry suits have been around for 40 years. It's almost 40 years. Yes. What's, what's the state of the art today? State of the art today is a dry suit that is made of a Gore-Tex or a trilaminate fabric, which is going to breathe. The other state of the art is that your booties are actually the fabric. So they're what we call fabric booties as opposed to a latex booty. Oh. And probably having neoprene or latex seals, you're definitely 
the most confident seals you would have would be a latex because when you do go in the water, water's not getting in. Sometimes with neoprene, it can stretch a little bit. So you will get a little trickle of water in. So it still is safe. And when you yep. say neoprene, you mean like what someone would say a wetsuit fabric, right? Yes, as it is a wetsuit fabric. So that and that fabric itself is waterproof. Right. And so it it's snug around your wrists, but it's not quite as snug as latex where it actually creates a seal. Now, what about that. breathing versus not breathing? I remember my sister would always take her coca cat suit and wave it in my face and say, oh, my my dry suit breathes. Is that meaningful? It it can be, but it's going to be an individual mm-hmm. aspect of what who likes breathability and who does not. Okay. Breathability will always work for everybody. But if it is a non-breathable dry suit, the most important thing is, is that you wear wicking layers all the way underneath because yeah. then any body vapor that you get will move and move and move out each layer. So you're wearing a polyester base against your skin and then it moves out. And then what happens to the non-breathable fabric is that it stops. So at that point, when you take off your dry suit, it's gonna be completely clammy and could be even actually wet on the inside. But your body, your anything against your skin is dry. So Mm. you're still staying warm. So that's the big difference is the vapor will move out if you're wearing a breathable breathable dry suit. And if you're not wearing a breathable dry suit, it's going to get trapped in what I call the hefty garbage eat, bag. Eat, eat out to the edge. Yeah. All right. Out to the edge. The boot question of frostbiting is most frostbiting is in dinghies. So a dinghy boot is really important, but you have to remember that when you get a dry suit, not only uh, do you need room for your heavier socks, but you also need room for your dry suit sock to go over that. And that's what's going to keep everything dry. So a lot of people in frostbiting will have two pairs of boots or who are dinghy sailors will have two pairs of boots. One will be the boot that they wear in the summertime, which is a little more tight fitting. Mm-hmm. And the other one's going to go up a size. A really good trick is that if you want to just get an inexpensive pair of sneakers, which are canvas, but mm-hmm. they're bigger Mm-hmm. And then you lace them up, but you have to make sure that you're comfortable when you put your foot underneath a hiking strap. Oh, so you're in, you're in an air club, you have your dry suit on and you have a big sneaker that goes over the booty? The, over yes. The, so you have, it, it goes over what I like to think of it in a dry suit when it's okay. connected to the dry suit is it's Got really it. your dry suit sock. Oh, oh, that's very clever. So you have your thick wool sock people will do wool and capoline will do combinations Um, but you don't want your foot to get into anything that's too tight because once Mm -hmm. you start to constrict your blood flow then you will get cold feet so make sure there's enough room in there and so you just wear a canvas sneaker and it's really big that's interesting yeah so we're talking high tops we're you know this is michael jordan's or air jordan wearing High tops or low tops, whatever you want, but just make sure you have some padding against the top of your foot. So when you stick it underneath the hiking strap. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the, I mean, that's there in a very few minutes, we've got a very concise guide for people as to what they should be doing. Hopefully Arthur is listening. Hopefully Arthur is listening, but to give a little bit of a recap, what it is, Tommy is wearing face layer wicking. Next layer, wicking. 
And then if you're me, your third layer is wicking. So everything's always moving out against your body. You want to keep the core of your body dry. That is what's going to help keep you warm. Now, if you remember, go back to episode four, to our episode on the Dyer Dow. We discovered that at the beginning, there was no such thing in 1932 as a one design frostbite dinghy. The racks in the Rossi building of Mystic Seaport Museum illustrate that. See the Dyer Dow, the nine footer, the Dink, the 10 footer, along with a variety of lettered dinghies, each a custom build, each of them about 11 and a half feet long with a 72 square foot sail. As we said, it was stock car racing, everything a little different, but roughly the same. Speed was up to the driver. Knapp fills in the history of how one design frostbiting designs came to be. Take it away, Peter. Let us consider the evolution of the present frostbite dinghy. At the first regatta of the Frostbite Yacht Club, there was an odd assortment of dinks and other boats. All small, of course. The dinks were, for the most part, 11 and a half feet long, most of them prams with a long overhang. The late George Ratsey had imported a number of prams from England and William J. Bill Dyer, remember the Dyer Dow creator? Of Providence had built several from his own design. That would be those Dyer 9 and 10 footers. Knapp continued, as interest increased in this new sport, designers, builders, and sailors vied with themselves and each other to produce a faster dink. About the only measurements now remaining of the original designs are the overall length, 11 and a half feet, and the sail area, 72 square feet. And even the sail has changed shape considerably. It all got too complicated and too expensive in the so-called, quote, open class. So one design was the answer. And the boats came. The Alden 10, the Potter B, the Rhodes Penguin. The interclub dinghy came along as a strictly one-design boat. The boat that in its original modern molded plywood was one of Olin Stevens' successful string of small one-designs before and after World War II, sandwiched between his avid pursuit of the six-meter and his future ocean racing commissions. The Little I See, along with the Lightning and the Rhodes 19, may have one of the longest running careers in small boat sailing. Started in 1946, about 1,200 have been built in plywood and fiberglass. Conceived and built on City Island, out of Owen's fertile brain, the IC was designed to be made from the new molded plywood developed during the war. And then in the 60s, the design moved on to fiberglass. Not a light boat. The rules specify an all-in crew weight of over 315 pounds for the crew. Add a 150-pound boat, the interclub needed evolved rigging and the modern synthetic lines and go-fasts to be competitive. But when you are downwind in 15 knots plus, the IC is the same rock and rolling creature that it ever was. Larchmont's fleets from the late 1930s were a who's who of aces. Just read the trophies arrayed to the south of the Yacht Club's inside bar. Ogilvy, Knapp, Mossbacker, Shields, Monsanto, Ulmer. 
These were the memorable racing stars, and are the memorable racing stars, of Western Long Island Sound. My own first icy experience was college sailing at Kings Point with the fiberglass version. The diving bell, we called it, because of its downwind squirreliness. To be honest, the inner club felt like a bit of a step up from the ancient tech dinghies we had on Lake Carnegie at Princeton. But when I returned to the Interclub at Larchmont, it was in a wood boat in 1983, restored from an accident attempting to fly a 40-year-old wooden boat off a roof rack on the Connecticut Turnpike that wasn't tied down. It took hours of labor and gallons of epoxy to put Humpty Dumpty together again. I always said I had a Goujon Interclub with a custom wood core. The vital statistics of my own interclub winter sailing tour of duty were years sailed, 13, in this woody reconstituted as boat number seven, originally built in the same year as Arthur Knapp's Agony, which was number eight. If you peered close enough, the eroded brass ID plate in the transom suggested the date 1946. Average numbers of weeks sailed per season, 15. Annual races per season, 80 plus. Best finish. I won one race in my career. Heavy air. I was always in the B group, seated in the middle, when my sister was in the A's with her spanking new boats. Average daily finish, somewhere between 8 and 16. Best moment, 1992. Winning the Little Scorpion Trophy, the most improved trophy. But I was still in the B division when it came to 1993. We turned to Nick Langone, current chairman of Winter Sailing, to help us with the recent history and the logistics of exactly how the finely tuned Winter Sailing program works. Surprise, surprise, we learned that a lot of the history and know-how was in fact from Race Your Boat Right. The rest I gleaned from race committee conversations while watching the racing. One only has to wait an average of 16 minutes, the time it takes for a twice-around windward lured with gates finished to lured. Plenty of time to talk. Nick took over the reins as RC chair from an elite line of race committee chairman. As he says, Knapp says it best. The valuable school angle of frostbiting comes from the great number of races held in one day. There may be four, five, or ten. The weather and the race committee determining the exact number. The race committee also decides whether the day is suitable for racing at all and calls the whole thing off if it is blowing too hard for safe sailing. This is as it should be, since there are always one or two diehards who want to race whether conditions are proper or not. And then... Racing is supposed to be for fun and not an endurance test. And thanks to conservative and considerate race committees, in 20 years of racing, there have been no drownings. Phew. Again, Knapp has laid down the guiding principles, as well as the virtues of frostbiting, which are many. Quite frankly, it's the story of the frostbiting committee boat that makes me chuckle the most. At Manhasset, a converted landing barge with a house built on it, known as the Worry Wart, is generally used though occasionally races are started from the glassed-in dock end. At Larchmont, a pontoon float with a house built on it, and known as the Little Scorpions Club, 
takes care of the committee. The Little Scorpions Club is nothing more than a float with four pontoons in the corners, used in the summer without the house as a dinghy float, and towed through Larchmont Harbor each race day so that a windward start may be set up. The name was borrowed from the well-known, to nap, cartoon series originated by Fontaine Fox, the Tunerville Trolley. It came about because the house and stovepipe made it look like the drawings of the kids' Little Scorpions Club in the comics, long before Dilbert, even Peanuts. Try Blondie or Dick Tracy. Tradition abounds. One quaint custom has prevailed, that of every contestant supplying liquid refreshment for the season to the RC members. Quality and quantity of the beverages is noted, and the year-end leftovers serves the closing party. Nick has refined his RC platform during his tenure with new technology and practiced teamwork. This includes a new and improved computer-generated starting horn that you can hear at the start over the din of luffing synthetics. Big flags. Downwind gates. Frostbiting is run with the same precision as its summer cousin, Larchmont Race Week. And the people in charge are from the same race committee bench. And the Bible is race your boat right. The legacy of NAP is everywhere. The courses, the starting procedures, and, most important, the philosophy. Race your boat right was the Bible for frostbiting stalwarts. Tactics. Push up on that start. Work up the weather leg through the middle. Find those ley lines, cross or not. It's all there in a few pages of chapter 20. But most important, Arthur Knapp's philosophy is there. Clear, clear, clear. Go out and try. By the end of the afternoon, you may still be in last place, but it's probably a lot closer last place than in the first race. By the end of the season, you may be giving the so-called experts a run for their money, and I will guarantee that you'll do considerably better in your summer racing than you did the previous season. Ever the cheerleader, Knapp sums it up. If you can handle an 11.5-foot sailing dinghy, you can handle a 30-foot racing machine, a 60-foot cruising boat, and are well on your way towards taking the helm of an America's Cup yacht. Imagine if Arthur were the coach of Babe Ruth or Michael Jordan. The sky would have been the limit. And the proof, he says, is always in the result. Many of the sound successful summer champions have come through the dinghy racing school. Men and women who five years ago could barely keep a dinghy on its feet are now the champion and expert skippers of their various summer cruising or racing classes. Truly, frostbiting is a good school, albeit at times a cold one. Amen, and thank you, Arthur. Listeners, go back and read that book. Well, we saw the result of all this history in action on that lovely afternoon in mid-December. The group was a younger one than my cohort of the 1980s, where there were senior sailors abounding, and the median age was probably high 30s, low 40s. Today's field was 10 years younger, with a sprinkling of high school and a gaggle of ex-collegiate sailors. They were very confident in their boat handling skills, upwind and downwind with kinetics, attacking the fleet at the gates, pushing the boat dead downwind with every puff. See the gallery for the episode with Peter Taylor's Shots of the Day. 
With the breeze northwest, from 4 to almost 20, the leaders did a great job of tracking the shifts and staying upright. The actual only capsize came before racing started, and that crew was game and back sailing by the end of the day. The 32-boat fleet pushed hard at the start on a good-sized line and finished off and overlapped on a short finish line. My observations, the boat remains the same, but the techniques reflect the changes in technique that many of the sailors learned in intercollegiate sailing. Aggressiveness at the start, limiting the number of tacks, keeping your lane clear, calculating the trade-offs downwind, and escaping mark rounds cleanly. Today, winter sailing is about a new generation of skippers, many of them graduates of the top intercollegiate teams, with its many starting situations, tight roundings, and relentless short course tactics. The boats are largely fiberglass, with brands from the 1970s solid glass days to 1990s vanguards to the news Lars Gluck bottles. For sure, my summer performance in the thistle was improved by all this frostbiting. For sure also, I would not stand a chance in this fleet, rocking the boat through upwind tacks, scraping the weather rail in the water, and healing to the point of disaster downwind. So winter sailing has gone from a game of crafty old veterans to one of quick lith ex-collegians. Surely there are some older skippers, the local Viper leader, the perpetual Shields champ. I most enjoyed talking to the youngest crew, an intrepid young woman named Claire, replete in her winter hat and dry suit. She claimed she was 10. Her father chuckled. One of the day's leaders was Chrissy Klingler, 2020 New England Sailor of the Year at Yale. 2017 national champ with her Yale classmate, Sister Casey. Chrissy is the granddaughter of Butch Elmer, winner of four championships during my time, only to be succeeded by his son, who won four more. Winter sailing remains an Elmer clan event. From 1983 to 1996, I participated annually in Larchmont winter sailing. In 1992, I won my trophy for most improved, and I should have stopped right there and then. My crew got engaged. My daughter was born August 1992, and the duties of fatherhood and pressures of work diminished my skills year by year. When my son arrived, I hung up my tattered dry suit and put my 1946 question mark built wooden boat under my sister's New Canaan porch. Nick Langone shows better judgment, with sunset closing in at 4.30. He calls it a day and sends the fleet to the club. Nick warms his hands on the brand new wood stove in the barge and reminisces one day some time ago that it was his race committee crew that was out there in the water. Pure sailing nostalgia. That is Larchmont Winter Sailing. So come back in the next two weeks 
We'll finish editing the comments of the two champions. Grandfather with the family sailmaker's name. Granddaughter with the national championship to her name. We'll ask them how they got into frostbiting, what they like, and how they think this frostbiting game has changed. Come back at the end of the month for part two, IC Classic, 88 years of winter sailing at Larchmont Yacht Club. And welcome. We've come to the business side of the presentation. Yacht clubs, classes, and community sailing groups. We can make you a very special offer. We can take a new or archival podcast and put your message in it. It goes out to our growing audience of subscribers. What better way to reach your own special audience, your own members, than with a conversation podcast aimed at them? Let us show you how it's done. You can reach me at TCD, the number four, sale, S-A-I-L, two, that's TCD for sale two, at gmail.com. We have spots for your messages, but they will fill up fast. And of course, we change it up a bit for our current partners. First time in 2022, a few words. Windcheck Media with Windcheck Magazine, reaching more sailors than anyone from New York to the Cape. We promised the owner, Ben Cesar, skipper of Interclub 21, that we would keep him out of this podcast. But seriously, we have a first half of 2022 packed with articles for Windcheck. And remember that those articles have a QR code that takes you directly to Conversations' website. Point your device, voila, you are at the Conversations with Classics Boats episode page. Participating in real life in an episode for the first time was Mad Martha of Team One Newport. We are proud to carry their new logo on our Nalgene bottle. You heard Martha Parker this episode give us the bottom line on being best dressed for winter sailing. Just straight talk on surviving your boat of choice in dry suit and gloves. 2022 is our year to grow distribution through the national magazines and regional magazines that serve boaters all through the country. Welcome again to Spin Sheet, our mid-Atlantic friends. They carry our classic boat column from the back of Spin Sheet magazine. See the classic boat feature in February. The subject? Oh, what a coincidence. Sailing in winter in an interclub dinghy. Out west, you Bay Area and Pacific Northwest classic lovers, look for us in your publications. And thank you, Craig Lewick, at Scuttlebutt down there in San Diego. You're taking the conversation out to more than a million sailing enthusiasts. And thanks today for, obviously, the participation of all those Larchmont Frostbiters. You put on a great show. Thanks to Nick Langone, head of Winter Sailing at Larchmont, and his crew. And, of course, Peter Taylor for his photo and narration. And keepers of Arthur's book. It was Van Nostrand in my thing. Whatever they are, thanks for the 1960 edition. Still going strong at 62 years. And thank you, the listener. Continue to have great ideas. Give us feedback. Remember that you can listen to all of the episodes for free. It's a great way to relax with sailing stories when you are months away from sailing. And give us a review. Five stars, please. And if you're not a subscriber, get Conversations with Classic Boats wherever you get your podcasts or on the website, conversationswithclassicboats.com.
This podcast was written by Tom Darling and produced by Griffin Bengraff. Subscribers are loving his new graphic designs and photo layouts for each episode. And in the meantime, it's tough out there. Take care of yourself and someone else if you can. Fair sailing, Tom Darling. We'll roll the old chariot along. We'll roll the old chariot along. And we'll all hang on behind. And a drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. A drop of Nelson's blood wouldn't do us any harm. And we'll all hang on behind.